where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. Well, it is great to be in person. I gotta tell you, it's really weird to pre-record a sermon, go to my own church, and realize I'm preaching in another city on a video. It was a very kind of surreal experience to really be in two places at once. So it's great to be with you all, see you face to face, and those of you who are now on the other end of the screen than I was before. Um, I also figured my, my congregation has a, they know that when I preach, I preach in shorts. I have kind of this, uh, some, I got thumbs up, this is great. Uh, I got, it's almost a claustrophobia for me that to be in pants. And so I am grateful for the freedom to preach in shorts, and I figured no better place to do it than when Ecclesiastes talks about the vanity of vanities. I can at least get away with shorts, even if it wasn't approved. So thank you for uh, welcoming our family here today, too. Uh, it's great to be with you all. Um, I watched the last two weeks, and I really like the idea of the writer of Ecclesiastes being called Grumpy Pants, that... Reverend Sarah mentioned in a couple weeks ago. And um, I want to kind of do another settling exercise, although maybe it is unsettling, but to close your eyes. And we're going to kind of go through this overview of a little bit of uh, Bible history. So maybe even the imagery in your head, recall some of uh, some Bible stories, maybe as you heard them as, of, at the, as the first time. So maybe that was when you were a kid in Sunday school. Maybe that was when you were an adult reading the Old Testament for the first time. So maybe you'll have this felt board effect going on in your head, and maybe you'll have a Hollywood video. But imagine you're in Egypt, and you're making bricks, and you keep making bricks, and then suddenly you're asked to make bricks without straw. And it gets worse and worse. And then this guy Moses comes from his high place and gets a little closer proximity to you. And eventually delivers you from Egypt, only to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Then after wandering, we settle somewhere. Then after settling for a while, we wonder if we should have a king. And then we start with judges and then add some more judges. And then we kind of settle on a king, and then the kings rule, and David's there, and we get to Solomon. And they say that Solomon had this era of peace, like none before that. But then Solomon's reign comes to an end, and soon after, exile. And somewhere in here, we can open our eyes if you're still closed, is where Ecclesiastes, we think, was written. A lot of people think Solomon wrote it. But either way, it's very retrospective that we're looking back. There's some sort of 2020 vision that even after being delivered from Egypt, even after being led by a fire by night and a pillar, a cloud pillar by day, even after this reign of Solomon that was almost perfect, it still was all laid to waste. And I think that's the perspective 
that this writer, whether Solomon wrote it and it was handed down maybe through historians or some sort of oral tradition, or whether someone who's in Babylonian or Assyrian exile is thinking about everything that they've been through and was it worth anything? Except it's written from this super place of privilege that they, the writer in Ecclesiastes, at least it's written from this space that I had access to every single pleasure and opportunity imaginable, and yet it was still in vain. So I want you to close your eyes one more time, except this time you're in space, and you see the, the earth as that beautiful marble that it is. And you have kind of this experience that people call the overview effect. One astronaut describes it as he was out there on the space station. Now you are going to imagine yourself as this astronaut. You're clipping into this arm on the space station and you're gonna do what's called a windshield wiper maneuver. Basically, you push off and you, this arm goes out and you're on the end of it like a windshield. If you're like me, you might be experiencing vertigo. I don't like heights or anything like that, and I feel like I'd be very decentered in this space. But as you're coming around to the top of the arc, this is what this astronaut, Ron Guerin, said. As I approached the top of this arc, it was as if time stood still, and I was flooded with both emotion and awareness. But as I looked down at the Earth, this stunning, fragile oasis, this island that has been given to us and that has been protected, has protected all life from the harshness of space, a sadness came over me, and I was hit in the gut with an undeniable, sobering contradiction. In spite of the overwhelming beauty of this scene, serious inequity exists on the apparent paradise we have been given. I couldn't help thinking of the nearly one billion people who don't have clean water to drink the countless number who go to bed hungry every night, and the social injustice, conflicts, and poverty that remain pervasive across the planet. Seeing Earth from this vantage point gave me a unique perspective, something I've come to call the orbital perspective. Part of this is the realization that we are all traveling together on the planet, and that if we all looked at the world from that perspective, we could see that nothing is impossible. I feel like that's almost, you can open your eyes now. I feel like that's almost this space that Ecclesiastes is being written from, that they've removed themselves from a bubble that they were in, and they're looking back. In the astronaut's case, it's kind of in this current weird space where they still exist on the planet and still have to go back. In Ecclesiastes, it feels like it's this grumpy pants who's escaped but doesn't want to go back no matter the power and privilege that they might have had to enact any kind of change that they wanted to. And so you get stuck in this paradox that seems to be between enormity and fragility, in a way. One, another astronaut described that experience, that we have been so focused on going to the stars, the moon, and other planets, that we completely forgot about what it would look like to turn away and see where we came from and that that might have been the most valuable thing to gain out of the whole experience of going to the moon. That you can literally see day and night separated as if you're in this God space when God created day and night. 
So what do we do with this self-awareness if we don't want to be seen as a grumpy pants? I feel like we get to see this existential crisis, this questioning of existence at all, in the mind of grumpy pants, this kind of spoiled person who had access to everything that he did. We're also aware of our limits. We become maybe, maybe really acutely aware to a point of very uncomfortableness. When you're in space, they say that they can see the marks that we have made, whether mostly agricultural, streets, maps. If you use Google Earth, you can zoom out really, really, really far and still see all the marks that we have made and yet know that it would just take one act of Mother Nature to wipe all those marks away. And so we're stuck in this vanity of vanity moment. And that brings us to Ecclesiastes 3.7, where it says there is a time for tearing and a time for sowing, a time for silence and a time to speak. When it talks about tearing, it's referencing moments, especially in the Old Testament, of injustice where someone would tear the clothes off of themselves in front of a courthouse or in front of a magistrate to demonstrate the injustice that has been done in their context. So we're stuck in this, this awareness of the enormity of our, our world and the, maybe the minuteness of our existence. What does anything we do matter? If there's a time to tear and a time to sow, why are we tearing if we're just going to sow it back? If there's a time for silence and a time for speaking, what do we do when we just talk over each other? And what do we do when the silence enables oppressors? Well, if we don't want to get stuck in this grumpy pants, we kind of have to go back to ground level. We can't just exist in space forever. We live on this side of the resurrection and this side of Pentecost. So there's something that we have that maybe the writer of Ecclesiastes wasn't aware of what was coming. We know what injustice looks like. Deep down, we can feel it. Maybe we can't articulate it, but deep down, I think we can feel it when we see it or hear it. We know what it is like to feel exploited or to exploit another person. I think all of us can relate to those experiences. So how do we kind of move away now that we know, now that we're on this side of Pentecost from this kind of grumpy pants escapist place where you have the ability to go in and out of these places in life that often bring pain but also joy. Later on in Ecclesiastes, well actually throughout Ecclesiastes, they kind of, even though it's in this grumpy space a lot, there is also mention of being with each other, that if we are going to be living in this kind of life, it is best to do it with somebody else or another community, a group of people to help us in the times of pain, but also to celebrate those times of joy. And I think there's a few things that kind of help center us there. One of those is Sabbath. I kind of see this ex- this experience from space getting away from the ground level of, of it all as a way of expressing Sabbath, that suddenly you're aware of what you were just removed from. 
and it's healthy to get a little bit of space between that so that you can go back in. If you're able to see some of uh, the recordings of when I spoke the last couple times, the forge was a part of one of those where we turned guns into garden tools. And when you're working on the metal, you have to put it in that forge to heat it up so that it can be worked on, but it's not in the forge all the time. Some people describe that forge as the place of rest where you're getting the heat and re-energized to be worked on again. And sometimes people feel like that heat of the forge is not rest at all, but you get out and you feel rest as you're cooled outside of the forge and shaped into some sort of tool by your community. One of the things I've learned turning guns into garden tools is that when the prophets talked about swords into plowshares, I think the actual turning the sword to the plowshare was not their point, but that the process that you go through in changing your tools from one thing to another and depending on something different is what is valuable. So on this side of Pentecost especially, when we have this kind of unseeable Holy Spirit, or maybe as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, you can see the effects of the wind, but not the wind. So you can see the effects of the Spirit in our world that we're invited into these times of Sabbath to remove ourselves, but also remind ourselves of the awareness of the spaces that we're in. Which brings us into kind of this seasonal space. So much about turning swords into plowshares means you're moving from a tool of some sort of instant result in a sword into a tool that requires some sort of seasonal rhythm. You plant the seeds after you've plowed the field, and then you tend to those seeds. Micah's version of turning swords into plowshares talks about a vine and a fig tree. Well, it takes seven to eight years for a fig tree to mature on average to bear fruit. So there's a long time and patience that you've prepped for this fig tree to bear fruit. And yet, those seven to eight years can be wiped away in an instant, whether it's Mother Nature or a bulldozer in the Holy Land. And so we're invited into this seasonal space, I believe, by turning swords to plowshares, but also to regulate ourselves in this vanity of vanities, in this space where we might be alive in that perfect generation where Solomon was king and there was great peace, but we might not get to be born into that time. These practices, these rhythms of rest, these rhythms of reflection, a rhythm of Sabbath, pull us into these seasonal spaces that help keep us a little centered in Christ, I believe. Our silence can allow space for another's voice. It can also enable oppression. Our voice can also drown out someone else's voice And I think this is part of that existential problem that the writer of Ecclesiastes is so frustrated with. How do we know when it's time to speak and when it's time to be silent? And I think we need to accept that we are going to be constantly wrestling with that question. That we won't have a nice, pat answer. We won't know what to do, but maybe we'll know how to do it. And we can look at Jesus for that. We get to see or peek into a little bit of Christ. We know when he was not silent, and perhaps his silence speaks the loudest at his own expense 
at his own trial before he was crucified. He said nothing. I can't imagine the peer pressure to say something at that moment. There is a crowd of people waiting for you to just overthrow this oppressive regime that has been guiding their lives for so long. And yet, he said nothing. I think that trusting the Spirit is probably one of the hardest things in the midst of this wrestling. I don't know when it's time to speak. I don't know when it's time to be silent. So what do I do? Sometimes you might be walking. I thought it was interesting that Francis Street is right out here. And one of his famous, St. Francis's famous things is to preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I lend myself towards a little bit of active uh, speaking. I don't actually like to speak in front of people. I'd rather work or be at the blacksmith station. And I think that has lent, led me actually here today. Because if the work of Raw Tools doesn't go to Connecticut four or five years ago, I don't get connected to Reverend Sarah. And we don't develop a relationship over the four or five years since to talk about the way that this works. And we don't find ourselves working together to plan an event to exchange tools of violence for other tools in a couple months with you all. But I didn't know what that was going to look like. I don't think that Sarah knew what that was going to look like. And I don't think that any of us knows what the next two months is going to look like. But for some reason, we keep moving forward towards that. If I was uh, a good planner, I would have had us sing, He's got the, God's got the whole world in God's hands today thinking of that blue marble in space. But we all know those words, and maybe you'll sing it on your way home today. But I think that what we can take from this wrestling with staying silent and speaking in this vanity of vanities, in this world that can feel like we're so little in such a large timeline, in such an expanse of space, that we get to practice being incarnate, just like Jesus being with each other, and continue to gather. The writer of Ecclesiastes, his name, I don't pronounce it very well, um, but it means a gatherer or teacher or speaker or preacher, but to continue to gather. So he wasn't just writing this to nobody. He was writing and talking to somebody or some people. So I think that's what we get to do after this, is we get to continue to gather But I want to close by inviting folks, not now, but later today, to talk about your moments of kind of that retrospective, your overview perspective experiences. Sometimes that comes with trauma. Sometimes that comes with learning something new. You often say the more you know, the more questions you have. I think it's important that we continue to tell these stories, especially intergenerationally. So that's our invitation to you uh, this afternoon and this week to tell these stories of when you had an aha moment or you had this overview or orbital perspective where you saw something from a new space. And may we walk forward trusting the Spirit and the example of Christ. Amen.